Good day, everyone. Welcome to part eight of our ongoing series on Knowing God. This is Pastor Ken Richards, and we continue today shedding light on issues concerning the character of God. Now, whenever there is a misconception of any person, it must, in fact, it can only negatively impact our relationship with that person. And this is more true than anywhere else when it comes to our relationship with God. God invites us, dear friends, into a faith relationship with himself, one which is based on absolute surrender of our heart, our will to him. The scripture states, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Notice the language. Trust how? With all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, this is the language of total self-surrender. This level of trust, however, dear friends, will be impossible to attain if we are harboring erroneous or wrong beliefs about God. It is a fact of life that no one can fully trust another person, while at the same time believing that there is something sinister about them, some measure of ruthlessness or violence which is just brooding beneath the surface of their character, just overshadowed maybe by acts of goodness and mercy, but which nevertheless can break forth with a vengeance that will cause them to drown a whole world of people or burn whole cities of people to the ground, men, women, and children. If we believe that this is somehow in someone's character, it's going to be hard to trust them completely. Because if you ask anyone, would you pour gasoline on a city of people and burn them all to the ground? They would say, no, I would never do that. And yet they would not think that they're more loving than God, but yet they think that God does this because they misunderstand the things that they read in terms of the way these things really happen. We can tell ourselves otherwise, you know. Oh yeah, I can trust him completely. You know, we, we can even try to drown out the nagging questions at the back of our mind by plunging ourselves into the hype and the formalities of religion. But the nagging questions don't just go away. They remain there beneath the surface of our thinking, beneath the clamor and the noise of religious rituals with which we try to block them and to drown them out. And these nagging questions remain there only to resurface and to create doubts in our minds when we find our own lives seriously challenged by difficulties and hardships, or maybe our life is on the line, it's our life is threatened, and we start thinking, why God? How could God do this? Why is God punishing me? Why is We find ourselves start thinking along these lines. What did I do to deserve this? Why is God making this happen to me? But this is usually, dear friends, a time of revealing when many come to find out that they never really knew God. And when it comes to more serious circumstances, 
In order to survive or to get out of a very difficult, life-threatening situation, many end up denying their Lord and abandoning Him, even as the disciples themselves did when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane to be crucified. They ran away from Him. He told them they would do that, and they said, No, we would never do this. And yet they did. After walking with Jesus for three and a half years and thinking they really knew Him, Now, fortunately, they had the opportunity of realizing and making things right in the aftermath of his resurrection. But for many people, this is a final choice, as we have seen in many parallels throughout history. The relevance of this topic, dear listener, is highlighted by the fact that in sure fulfillment of Bible prophecy, events in the world are rapidly developing and ripening into a state of global crisis, which will soon fulfill the words of the prophet, who described the period of time towards the end as a time of trouble such as never was ever since there was a nation, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. This is a time when it will be revealed who each person really believed in. On a worldwide scale, you know, the flames of crisis are being fanned into a terrible fire by the forces of evil. And sooner or later, in the face of great adversity, everyone will have to make a choice as to who their God is. Jesus himself predicted that this will be a time during which the hearts of the people will be failing them for fear and for looking upon the things that are coming upon the world. Luke 21 and verse 26. The Bible also predicts that many professed Christians, out of fear, will end up denying their faith in Christ in order to get food or in one way or another to save themselves from hardship. And this they will do because they never really knew God, though they thought they did. In the same way that you don't really know who your friends are, until that friendship is tested and you truly need a friend to stand for you even at the cost of their reputation, that's when you know who your friends are. So too, you don't really know if you trust God until that faith and that trust is tested. No wonder Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes again, shall he find faith on the earth? Luke 18 verse 8. The question, dear friends, is intended to project the idea that genuine faith will be scarce. Hence, there is a need for this time of a message which helps to shed light in the dark corners of popular understanding of God so that we might be clear, so that we can be delivered from all misgivings, all misconceptions concerning His character. So that, we can truly understand what the Bible means when it says that God is love and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so that this will become no more just a statement of something to recite because it sounds good. God wants us to fully understand what is implied, what is meant in the statement that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. So that we can come to see 
that God is life and in him is no death at all. That the truth about God is revealed in the life of self-sacrifice by the love of Jesus Christ and by his death on the cross for sinners who hated him. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8-10, But God has shown his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When we were his enemies, we were saved by the death of his Son. God is saying, this is who I am. In Romans 8, the same apostle goes on to say, verse 31 and 32, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Dear friends, God wants us to know that he considers nothing too precious to give to those whom he has created in his own image. He wants us to know that he is not our enemy. He is not our destroyer. Sin and evil beings under the control of sin are the destroyers. Even as the scripture makes clear. In James chapter 1 from verse 13 to 15 it says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, in other words, when it has matured, it brings forth sin. And notice now, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Not God, but sin that brings forth death. The principle of sin, therefore, carries within it, dear listener, the seeds of death. Hence, we're told in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Sin pays its own wages. God does not pay sin's wages. In fact, God does not pay wages at all. God gives gifts only. What God gives is so precious that you can't work for it to make it wages. It has to be a gift. It's so valuable you can't work for it. That is why the scripture says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, O Lord. And then after making it clear in verse 15 of James 1, that it is sin that produces death, it continues on and it flows into the beautiful verse that we have expounded on in an earlier segment of this series. Verse 16 continues, it says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not make the mistake of thinking otherwise. Verse 17, Because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variableness, there is no variation from good gifts, neither a shadow of turning. He does not vary, he does not turn from that way of giving good and perfect gifts. The book of Revelation, dear friends, makes the point that just before the return of Jesus Christ, there will be a point at which every person living will have made their decisive choice. 
when every case will have been decided and everyone's eternal destiny will be sealed forever. This will be during Earth's great time of crisis, when all will have to show who their God is and in whom is their faith resting. Whether it is the creator of all mankind, or man and the corrupt systems of men who have given themselves over into the service of Satan. Then the Bible shows us that the irrevocable, the unchangeable decree will go forth as shown in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. In Revelation 22 and verse 11, it states, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So everyone's choice difference will be fixed forever. The true understanding of God is essential to have so that when this unchangeable line is drawn in the sand and no one is able to change from that point, he that is filthy, let him be filthy still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. When this line is drawn in the sand, we will be found still faithful, still standing on the side of God. But in order to stand through the test up ahead, we have to know God. Thus, as one inspired author writes, I quote, it says, Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming must say to the world, Behold your God. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world will be a revelation of his character of love. End of quote. So by his Spirit's working upon hearts, God will ensure that everyone will, in one way or another, be exposed to the truth concerning him and be given the opportunity to accept or to reject it so that their eternal choice will be fixed, whether for good or for evil, on the basis of having received evidence. Now we can see why in John 17 and verse 3, Jesus in his prayer, his famous prayer, stated the words, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. You know, in last week's study, we saw that when the Bible is closely and carefully studied, it becomes evident that the common expression, the wrath of God, is not something of God. It is not something coming from God. And neither does it describe an attribute of God's character. When used in reference to God, wrath describes not a response of violence on this part of God, but rather it describes a state a condition in which the presence of God is removed from a person or from a situation or from a nation or from a world. It represents what happens when the presence and protection of God has been withdrawn due to the persistent disobedience of a people in rejecting him. In other words, a state of wrath is created. When iniquity has reached a certain point, which God who reads the heart alone knows, 
then he is left no option but to remove himself, leaving the rebellious to what they have chosen. And over and over in the scriptures, we see that God does not force the will of any, but he lovingly invites and encourages us into the safe paths, into a relationship with himself. Having given us the freedom to choose, he does not coerce or force our choice. He sends his angels, however, as guardians to protect us. He sends his Holy Spirit to persuade us, to give us understanding, and to bring a conviction of the truth to our conscience so that we may be drawn to him. He gently persuades us, but he does not coerce us. There is a difference. The use of coercion or force to intimidate or to compel any of his creatures would be an infringement upon their freedom of choice. And that is why in the Bible, you will see that despite the almighty power of God, he will even allow creatures to reason with him. And we see examples of puny human beings arguing with God, finding excuses for not doing what he's requesting them to do. And God, instead of making a power play and saying, you got to do what I say because I'm God and I'm your creator and I'm the source of your life. No, God gently reasoning with them to get them to obey. Here is just one of many examples. God appears to Moses in a burning bush and tells him that he has come down to deliver Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And he will use Moses as the leader in their deliverance. Let's read the narrative from the scriptures. God is speaking to Moses. Exodus chapter 3 verses 9 to 10. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come up unto me. And I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, Moses, and I will send you unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But notice the response of Moses in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 1. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord has not appeared unto you. In other words, Moses is saying, If I go and tell them the Lord appeared unto me and sent me, they will not believe me. God now responds. Verse 2 onwards. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it to the ground. And he cast it to the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth your hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand again. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared unto you, Moses. And the Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand became leprous as snow. It was full of leprosy. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. And when he put his hand in his bosom again, and then took it out of his bosom, and behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. In other words, it was back to normal. God is here showing Moses that he has all power. He's saying, Moses, if I send you, just go, trusting me. You have nothing to worry about because all power is mine. And yet, notice again, verse 10. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, 
neither now or before, or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. He's still finding excuses. And the Lord said unto him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the dumb or the deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? God is saying, Who makes man's mouth? Who makes the dumb to speak, the deaf to hear, the blind to see? Is it not I? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall see. And yet Moses continues. And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. Moses saying, I can't go, Lord. Send somebody else, please. I'm afraid. And notice the next verse. Verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And what did he do? Did he burn him up or something? No. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well, and also, behold, he comes to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. And you shall speak unto him, and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. No, this is the Almighty we are talking about. Almighty in power, and yet uses his Almighty power only and always under the constraint of wisdom and love. Because power without wisdom is destructive. But God's power is never exercised apart from his wisdom and his love. And notice again in verse 14, it says, The anger of the Lord was kindled. Last week I mentioned that many times you see the anger of the Lord, it actually means the sorrow of the Lord. God's heart is broken. God is saying, Moses, after all I've shown you, you still don't trust me to go on the mission I'm sending you on? It means God is saying, Moses, you're breaking my heart right now. It's just a matter of language. So we see that man has freedom of choice. And that God does not use force, but he seeks to persuade gently. It was never God's intention for Aaron to go with Moses. God's purpose was to send Moses. And Moses remonstrated and he insisted. And eventually God gave in and said, Okay, Moses, have it your way. I'll send someone with you, Aaron, your brother. He doesn't force us. But when it comes to the unrighteous who embed themselves in sin and rebellion and refuse God's ways, eventually he has to leave them alone. He allows them to have what they choose also. Now, this withdrawal of God is often referred to as him giving them up or giving them over or delivering them up. If he gives them over, it can only mean that there is someone or something that he gives them over to. Now, this does not in any way mean that God is saying, okay, Satan, you can have them. It merely means that when God finally removes himself from the picture, who automatically steps in? The enemy of God and man. The hedge of protection is removed, and thus the evil one has more access and control over those who are given over to wrath. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse into what the wrath of God is. And so we will wrap this study up today by turning to the book of Romans chapter 1 from verse 18. And we will see that the apostle here is talking about people who reject God and his righteous principles. Notice how verse 18 starts out. Romans 1 from verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Notice, the wrath of God is what? Revealed. When something is revealed, it is made plain. So therefore, what follows must be that the apostle is giving us a plain view, a revelation of what God's wrath entails. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. In other words, these are not people who are ignorant of God. They knew his ways. It was shown to them, but they turned away from it. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It is telling us that even in nature, the invisible God has revealed himself to mankind through the things that he has created. The things that are made, it says. The intricacies of nature testify that there must be a divine creator of it all. That means the scientists and those who dig the deepest in studying the things of nature should be the greatest believers. But that's the camp in which we find some of the greatest atheists. But it says no one will have an excuse. It says they are without excuse. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So they spiraled downwards into deeper and deeper idolatry. Verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one towards another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. In other words, that result, the consequences of their behavior, which was just. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Think about this. The apostle says the wrath of God is revealed, it is made plain against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And what did he say this looks like? Like an angry God who goes on a rampage, spreading destruction upon the ungodly? No, not at all. Three times he says, God gave them up, verse 24. God gave them up, verse 26. God gave them over, verse 28. That means God says, okay, I'm out of here. You're on your own. Dear friends, how does a just and righteous God, who gave all the freedom to choose, how does he deal with the unrighteous? He bears long, patiently enduring their rebelliousness, until they cross that line beyond which he has to step back and leave them alone. 
He gives them over, leaving them to their reprobate minds, to the many dangers that are always surrounding us in a fallen world, and to the control of evil powers that they have chosen to be controlled by. Understand that to all who do not desire God's heart of love for them, God must eventually give them over to the desires of their own corrupt hearts and all the consequences that come with it. But to you, dear friends, and to all who will put their trust in him, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, continuing from verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? The implied answer is, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It goes on, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, he continues, that neither death nor life nor angels, this is talking about fallen angels, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Praise the Lord. Dear friends, understand that the love of God is broad, it's deep, but he respects your choice. If you choose not to have his love, he will have to give you over to the choices that you make. And those choices bring results. Because as we saw earlier, sin, when it is finished, brings for death. May God bless you all and keep you all as your mind continues to be stirred with understanding. Have a wonderful week. Love you all.